from the American College of Cardiology. This is Dr. Kim Eagle, ACC.org Editor-in-Chief, with this week's Eagle's Eye View. This is your weekly cardiovascular update from ACC.org. I'm recording this on Monday morning, February 3rd, 2020. I've chosen three articles today that I think illustrate different aspects of our practice. One of them is the five-year outcomes from the Partner 2A trial looking at TAVR for aortic valve stenosis. Another is a very interesting article looking at potentially the value of coronary CT angiography in patients with uh, non-STEMI. Is that a viable alternative for screening patients? And then lastly, a subsequent substudy from the DECLARE TIMI 58 trial that looked at the effect of dapagliflozin and atrial fibrillation in patients with type 2 diabetes. So let's start with the study looking at TAVR. Remember, the PARTNER 2A trial was a study looking at TAVR versus SAVR in patients at moderate risk, intermediate risk, who had severe aortic valve stenosis. And the initial report was the two-year results. Trial enrolled about 2,000 patients. The mean age was almost 82, 46% were women. The mean STS score was 5.8% risk. The CAD was present in roughly two-thirds, cerebrovascular disease in a third, and PAD in 30%. And the LVEF was generally preserved. And at two years, the primary endpoint of all-cause mortality or disabling stroke for TAVR versus SAVR was 19.3 versus 21.1%. So roughly quite similar. And interestingly, the TAVR group had moderate to severe paravivular aortic valve regurgitation at two years of 8% versus 0.6%. This particular report, then, is an update of the Partner 2A trial looking at the five-year outcomes, which, of course, is very important. And in this analysis, the primary endpoint for TAVR versus SAVR was 47.9% versus 43.4%. In the patients who were able to have a transfemoral TAVR, the rates of the primary endpoint were 44.5% versus 42%. Higher risk when TAVR had to go the apical route, 59.3% versus 48.3%. That was significant. Freedom from valve intervention was about 97% with TAVR, 99% with SAVR. Mean gradient, 11 versus 10 millimeters. A mild perivalvular leak was present in 17% of patients who had TAVR at five years. Moderate to severe was present in about 4%. So the five-year data just published suggests that TAVR continues to be, at five years, a reasonable alternative to SAVR. And now that the valve therapies have improved and the amount of perivalvular leak is much better in the current era, we would expect that if the partner trial was repeated today, that probably we would see even better results with TAVR. At the very least, this study is quite reassuring to us, particularly for patients undergoing TAVR who can have transfemoral access. The second article I wanted to mention was an interesting study published in Jack this week looking at the uh, accuracy of coronary CTA to identify significant coronary disease in patients with non-STEMI. Remember, there was a study which looked at patients with non-STEMI who were randomized to either early, less than 12-hour, or standard 48- to 72-hour invasive angiography. 
That study had an observational component where patients who were eligible underwent a CTA when it was technically feasible, and the results were blinded. So this is an analysis actually looking at whether or not coronary CTA could identify coronary disease with a greater than 50% stenosis compared to invasive coronary angiography. In the original trial, there were roughly 2,100 patients. In this sub-study, there were a little bit over 1,000 patients. 67% were male, and 62 years was the average age. And an elevated troponin was present in roughly 80%, new ECG changes in about 40%. By invasive coronary angiography in this group, a stenosis of 50% or more was seen in about two-thirds. If they looked at the overall sensitivity, specificity, positive predictive value, negative predictive value of coronary CTA, the sensitivity was 96.5%, specificity 72.4%, positive predictive value 87.9%, and negative predictive value roughly 91%. When the CT was clearly diagnostic, that is, there was no artifact, the study showed good images, the sensitivity and specificity were better at 96% and 76% respectively. So this study suggested that coronary CTA had a high diagnostic accuracy to exclude significant CAD among patients with non-STEMI. The specificity, of course, at around 75% is not ideal, and that continues to be a concern. One of the other aspects of this study is that two-thirds of the patients had coronary disease. And so if you imagine a strategy of CTA first, a good share of the patients would end up going through both the coronary CT angiogram and then an invasive angiogram, which exposes them to a more significant amount of ionizing radiation and, of course, cost. So the authors certainly also may note that a more effective clinical role for coronary CT may be in patients at lower likelihood of significant CAD where a majority could just have the CT alone. This reminds us then of the ischemia trial where the CT was particularly useful for excluding left main disease in that particular study. So clearly uh, improving accuracy of coronary CTA and it's certainly finding a larger role in emergency departments and other circumstances where we're evaluating coronary disease across the spectrum of risk and acuity. The last article I want to talk about was a substudy of the DECLARE TIMI 58 trial. You may remember this study. Recall that sodium glucose co-transport 2 inhibitors, SGLT2 inhibitors, they block glucose and sodium reabsorption in the proximal tubule, and they lower glucose without increasing the risk of hypoglycemia in patients with type 2 diabetes. And they lower blood pressure, not increasing the heart rate. They tend to reduce body weight, and they seem to have an effect in protecting for atherosclerosis and for heart failure-related outcomes. And this was a very interesting study which looked at the question, what was the effect on atrial fibrillation and flutter in this trial? In the original DECLARE-TIMI-58 study, the SGLT2 inhibitor dapagliflozin was studied versus placebo in about 17,000 patients. And the patients had type 2 diabetes and either multiple risk factors or known atherosclerotic heart disease, 10,000 and 7,000 respectively. And this study looked at the effect of dapagliflozin on first and total number of AFib, A-flutter events in patients with and without prevalent AFib. And they used a Cox model to try to estimate the effect. 
The results show that dapagliflozin appeared to reduce the risk of AFib aflutter by about 19%, 264 events versus 325 events, or roughly two events per 1,000 patient years. The reduction was consistent regardless of the presence or absence of prior AFib or whatever. Also, it was consistent in patients with and without ASCVD, with a history or without a history of heart failure, and so on. There was no effect modulation by sex, a history of ischemic stroke, A1C levels, etc. So the authors concluded that dapagliflozin appeared to decrease the incidence of reported episodes of AFib, A-flutter, and associated events in patients with type 2 diabetes. And this is an important and, I think, new finding. The reductions were consistent across the various groups. And if you think about it, this agent, by virtue of its effect in lowering blood pressure, weight, blood sugar, etc., clearly could be affecting cardiovascular physiology, lowering left atrial pressure, right atrial pressure, and presumably some of the mechanoreceptor triggers that cause AFib, flutter. So in addition to the beneficial effects of the SGLT2 inhibitors in reducing hospitalizations for heart failure and renal outcomes, this class of drugs may lower the risk of AFib, flutter events in a broad population of patients with type 2 diabetes, including patients who have or do not have CAD or heart failure at baseline. So an, an, an emerging science around this unique class of drugs, and I thought this was a really interesting paper which was published this week in circulation. So I, I want to thank you for listening to Eagle's Eye View. Uh, this is your weekly cardiovascular update from acc.org. You can find the articles and the general scans or the trial summaries on the website. Also, please look for other educational offerings under the Education and Meetings tab on the website. And I hope you have a terrific week. Thank you for listening.